Lord, as we come to your word now, we do pray that you would reveal your splendor to us anew and that you would edify, encourage, sanctify, challenge us, grow us in holiness, Lord God, to be made fit for your kingdom, for your glorious name's sake. Help us to live in light of eternity, remembering that we were purchased at the high cost of Christ's own blood and that you have not left us alone, but that you have given us the helper, the Holy Spirit who is with us and in us. And Christ even now ever lives to make intercession for us. Grow us in gratitude as we walk by faith, standing on these promises. Bless this time as we enter into your word now, O Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please open to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll be continuing in our study through the letter to the Hebrews this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, looking at verses 1 to 9 today. And for those who may not be aware, uh, this is a study that started back in about mid-2022, so we've been going through it at a somewhat leisurely pace. It's been sort of our once-in-a-blue-moon series, so if you're taking notes, you may want to keep them somewhere safe, <laughs> maybe put them in a lockbox and store them away somewhere, because we don't know how often we'll be going through this. But it is a blessing to be able to go through this study whenever the Lord gives us the opportunity. If you recall in our previous lessons through chapter 1, we saw the divinity of Christ, the Son of God. We saw his kingship seated at the right hand of the Father. Consequently, his supreme authority over all things, as well as his exceeding excellence and superiority over the angels. And that brings us to where we are today, as the author of Hebrews now pivots to introduce the first of six warnings or exhortations contained throughout this letter. And the message today can really be boiled down to this. Keep your eyes fixed on the message of salvation. You know, messages are important, and we have a lot of messages coming our way these days, don't we? It's almost an inescapable fact of life. From the moment we wake up with our alarm bell ringing in our ears to the moment we finally fall asleep, we're constantly being bombarded with messages. Text messages, voice messages, Facebook messages, news messages, email messages. We have a whole spam folder dedicated to filtering out messages that we deem unimportant. But then there are some messages that cause us to sit up and pay attention. Maybe it's your son or daughter crying in the next room. Maybe it's an email you get from your employer. Maybe your boss walks into the room and has a word with you. The irony is that with all of our instant messaging technology today, we've become somewhat accustomed to messages, so we often postpone opening or answering them. But it's different when we're in the presence of someone. It's very hard to ignore what's right in front of you. And if we ought to heed the personal message of a colleague or a family member, how much more so the infinite, worthy Son of God who came into the world? Because of the weakness of our flesh, we have a great need to be reminded of the reality of God himself in the person of Christ who died to pay the incalculable cost of our sin against this one holy and just God. 
This deliverance we receive by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Hopefully we all know that. But to find peace and power to live in light of it, we must learn what it means to rest in that fact, to rest in it. And so bearing in mind who Christ is, the divine creator, sustainer, and king of the universe, the author of Hebrews proceeds to give his first warning. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. The author writes, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now remember that the original recipients of this letter were predominantly Jews who by all appearances had genuinely professed faith in Christ. But like many of the early church communities, they were in need of instruction and correction. That's the basic reason this letter was written. And while we don't know all the details of what was going on in this community, there was a clear threat of slipping away from the truth about Christ. One possibility is that... um, Perhaps the teachings of the Judaizers was entering in, trying to sway them back to the Jewish religion, mixing works with grace and forcing them to practice the Old Covenant signs and symbols. Another possibility is that under the severe threat of persecution, uh, they had been led down a path of improper or impotent application of the truth about Christ. Or on the flip side, perhaps they had simply become apathetic to the gospel and let other cares slip in and take over their life, not rightly esteeming the word of Christ. Whatever the case, these threats remain just as relevant to us today in one form or another as it was for them. So in verse 1, the author writes, For this reason, in light of who Christ is, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. We must pay much closer attention. We must. It's all too easy for us to just gloss over that, especially in our cultural context. When someone tells us that we must do something, we have a tendency to take it more like a strong suggestion uh, than a true imperative. But in the original sense of the word choice here, 
it is very emphatic. It's uh, often used in a legal context. This phrase in Greek suggests a binding necessity. And it is binding because this is God's word delivered to the saints. And there are consequences if we choose to ignore it, right? Of course, there are real, temporal, and eternal consequences for failing to heed God's word. So another appropriate translation of this is that we are bound. We are bound to pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Now this idea of drifting away paints a picture for us of a ship being carried away by the current of the sea. Because of the nature of the sea and the boat, unless the vessel is anchored or securely moored to a dock, it will drift away. That's how it behaves. It's the same with our faith in this world. We have a responsibility to tether or anchor our thoughts, as it were, to Christ daily, renewing our minds, as Romans 12.2 says. Otherwise, the pressures of this world and the wandering of our hearts will inevitably pull us either into carnality and indulgence or self-righteous religiosity, both of which are unfitting for a child of God because both worship and hope in something less than God. It's idolatry. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, admonished him to keep the word of God given through Christ in faith and a good conscience, warning against some who have rejected it and suffered a shipwreck in regard to their faith. That's from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 19. But with regard to our hope in Christ, we're told later in Hebrews, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, from Hebrews 6, 19. We can all relate, I'm sure, to a time where we've been told we must do something. Maybe intellectually we agree that we should, but in our heart, something is holding us back from desiring to do it the way that we know that we should. We know that the flesh and the spirit are at war with one another, but if we are indeed in Christ, our basic desire is to walk by the spirit, even when the flesh recoils against that. And it starts by humbly submitting ourselves to God, laying down whatever thoughts or desires we have at the foot of the cross, and looking unto Jesus, knowing that he has purchased you with his own blood. You are not your own, but you were bought at a price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. We belong to him. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's from Colossians 3, 1 through 3. This is what we must be reminded of daily, weekly. This is part of the reason we gather and we partake of the ordinary means of sanctifying grace. Now, what are some ways that we can drift? What carries our attention away from setting our mind on the things above? Could it be politics? Could it be even family? Maybe entertainment or hobbies or work? All fine things, of course, when they stay in their lane, don't get me wrong, but they make for terrible masters. Even these good things, once they rule over us, over our thinking, 
and become the foundation of what we're seeking contentment in, they become abhorrent before God. Because in effect, we're rejecting the chief purpose God made us for, that being to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever, right? And the irony is, those things demand more and more of our care and attention, but can never give us rest. They're not able to, because they can't. They may bring a momentary hit of dopamine, but in the end, they always let us down. And what's more, they rob God of glory. They can't solve our greatest problem, which is our sin before this almighty God. With so many distractions and uncertainties the people of God have faced throughout all of church history and perhaps even especially in our day, the answer has always been to go back to the basic truths of the faith and chisel them into our thinking until our heart catches up with our mind. Consider how Moses instructed Israel in the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's a pretty effective way to keep your attention, right? And the principle is that the word of, if the Word of God occupies our hearts regularly, God will be in our thoughts regularly. Not just on church Sunday or in our Bible study. Drifting from God and drifting from His Word are intricately linked you see, so by the same token, regular devotion to God in prayer and in the study of his word are the common tools he uses to grow us in our faith because through them, we increasingly see who God is, the splendor of him, and we become increasingly aware of who we are as sinners in need of his grace and hence our need for Christ. Now, what authority compels the Hebrews and compels us to pay attention to such a great message of salvation? Well, we read in verses 2 through 4 of Hebrews chapter 2, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. This type of argumentation is known as uh, aminori ad meis, meaning from the lesser to the greater. It was often employed by ancient rabbis to illustrate that if a proposition holds true in a smaller or lesser instance, then logically it must also hold true in a greater instance. Uh, for example, if somebody walking bumps into you, you think, ow, that hurt, right? Okay, now let's say a bicyclist runs into you. That hurt a little bit more, right? Maybe you have a few scrapes and bruises. Now let's say that a car going 25 hits you. 
Now you have a broken leg, perhaps, among other things. Now let's say that a semi-truck going 60 miles an hour is coming at you. You don't need to test that to know that it's not going to be good. Well, in this instance, the idea is that if the law of God given on Mount Sinai was mediated by angels and yet treated with all seriousness and punishments rendered to those who ignored it, how much greater will the punishment be for those who choose to neglect this fuller revelation delivered by God himself, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, keep in mind that the author isn't just talking about unbelievers here. Um, in fact, he's not directly talking to unbelievers at all. He's including himself when he says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It's a rhetorical question, yes, but in order for the argument to hold weight, it can't just be hypothetical either. He's talking to Christians about Christians. It's also important to note he says neglect, not reject. This isn't implying that a true Christian can lose their salvation nor should they fear God's righteous judgment against their sin because Christ has absorbed the wrath of God for our sin. It's done. However, God will correct us in love and our sin often comes packaged with its own punishments. Perhaps some of those a Christian most especially is fit to apprehend. But in any case, this is meant to stir us up in a healthy, holy fear of the Lord, which, by the way, is the beginning of wisdom, according to Proverbs. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6 says, Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Now, what does this talk about the angels that the author mentions? Verse 2 says, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? You might be thinking to yourself, what is he talking about with these angels? What word did they speak to men? Well, let's back up for a moment. The word angel in both Hebrew and Greek refers to a messenger. It's obvious in the context of Hebrews that he was referring to the holy angels of God, uh, we saw in our previous lessons that, uh, that the angels are servants of God and ministers for his people. Later in this very letter, the Hebrews are admonished to not neglect showing hospitality because some have entertained angels unaware. But when did they ever give moral commandments to men? Well, if you just read the Exodus account where Moses receives the moral law, the Ten Commandments, it's true, you won't find an explicit reference to angels. However, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, Moses, before his death, blessed the sons of Israel and said, in verses 2 and 3 of Deuteronomy 33, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones, that is, angels. At his right hand there was flashings, lightning, flashing lightning before them, Indeed, he loves the people. All your holy ones are in your hand. They followed in your steps. Everyone receives your word. Stephen the martyr, before he was killed at the hands of the Sanhedrin, gave a great defense for the faith. One of his arguments stems from the fact that Moses had received 
the oracles of God mediated through angels when he said in Acts chapter 7, verses 35 to 38, this Moses whom they disowned, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge is the one whom God sent to be both a ruler and a deliverer with the help of the angel who appeared to him in the thorn bush. This man led out led them out, performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with him with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. Later in verses 51 to 53, he says, You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers have now, you have now become, you who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Interesting, right? Paul in Galatians chapter 3 on the intent of the law says in verse 19, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So you see, angels evidently were the means by which God had delivered the message of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. This understanding is reflected in many ancient Jewish liturgical hymns. Uh, the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus in his book of the Antiquities of the Jews wrote, and I quote, And for ourselves we have learned from God the most excellent of our doctrines and the most holy part of our law by angels. End quote. So while this detail may not be something that we typically think of or focus on when discussing God giving a law on Sinai, Understand that this wasn't some obscure, esoteric argument that the author of Hebrews was pulling here. This was a fact that the Hebrews were apparently well acquainted with, and it holds real weight for them as it should for us as well. So then comes the question, why angels, if arguing from the lesser to the greater? I'm inclined to suggest that if God, in all his glory, unfiltered, spoke directly to Moses on Mount Sinai, the power and the glory would just destroy the whole mountain. But the angels could go into God's presence and carry the message to Moses. They served as couriers of God. It shows us the true distance between God and man. Now, earthly kings send out messengers on their behalf, not merely because of the logistical challenges of talking in person to everyone that they needed to, but also because they rule from the throne at the seat of authority. If they step out to personally deliver a message, it's received with all the more esteem, right? How much more so then should we esteem the king of the universe who stepped down from eternity to deliver personally and fulfill this message of salvation? The Old Testament is filled with examples of God punishing those who transgress his holy law. 
We're given vivid pictures of animal sacrifices that point us to our need for a perfect substitute. But now that the perfect substitute has come, if we would go on doubting him, if we would fail to esteem him, that would be an even greater transgression, you see. Later on in Hebrews, we read, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? If we neglect the gospel light, we will inevitably be pulled into a life of sin. And if we live in continuous, unrepentant rebellion against God, even while professing faith, At best, there's no grounds to believe that we've genuinely been saved because the purpose of our salvation isn't simply being rescued from hell. It is being made holy, even as God is holy. This isn't something that we do because we cannot produce holiness in ourselves. It is God who is at work in us. That's where we're admonished. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Genuine saving faith should produce thankfulness and praise unto God and holiness in our lives by the work of the Holy Spirit. So what happens when this isn't the case? This is the essence of what it means to neglect salvation. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The Greek word for neglect here is amaleo. Amaleo. It means to be careless, to make light of and not regard something. It's more subtle than a deliberate avoidance of something. It's ignoring it, but thinking that you're not. That everything is fine, when it isn't. It's a complacent attitude towards something that we can't afford to be complacent about. When God graciously delivers his people, he commands them to move forward in faith according to God's command. Think about when God sent forth the angels to rescue Lot and his family out of Sodom and with what haste he was commanded to move. Or when God sent forth fiery serpents upon the Israelites as a judgment and commanded in Numbers chapter 21, then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. When God saves his people... Seldom are they given the luxury of leisure. It's not an open-ended invitation. There is urgency, and there is an urgency to live by this salvation. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. John three fourteen fifteen. At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. 
Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6.2 The law is the standard of God's holiness. Christ is God's merciful answer to our falling short of it. To neglect this salvation is to neglect Him. It's to trade an infinite wellspring of life for a burning pile of trash. It's an insult to God, both by making light of His severe holiness revealed in the law and by esteeming lightly the high cost of our redemption because of the infinite value of Christ. He himself first came preaching this message. Mark 1.15, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew 9.35-38, Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And this work, of course, would begin, as we see in verses 3 and 4 of Hebrews chapter 2, where it says, It was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. And the gospel proclamation, of course, continues with power and grace given by the Holy Spirit to this day. It's interesting to note that once again the author of Hebrews includes himself here when he says it was confirmed to us. That suggests that he wasn't a witness of Christ's earthly ministry himself, but was a, rep- a recipient of the apostles' teaching. Or it could simply be a manner of speech and he's just being polite. But regardless, he doesn't appeal to any special revelation that he personally received. Instead, he models for his audience the kind of faith and standard of authority that he's exhorting them to follow. Now, in the Old and New Testament, signs and wonders and various miracles were used by God to confirm his work, sort of like a down payment, to show that he will keep his promises. It's the legal evidence of God's faithfulness. That's why whenever God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, he's calling to remembrance the miraculous works he performed to show them and to deliver them out of the hand of Egypt. It's the same with the apostolic sign gifts, most notably given at Pentecost and on throughout the apostolic age. These weren't indiscriminate, vaguely defined events. They were specific confirmations given by God according to his will to show the veracity of the gospel message to those who would receive it by humble, Christ-focused faith contrary to how so many so-called apostles, prophets, and faith healers butcher and twist this doctrine in our day. The signs weren't an end unto themselves. They were pictorial forms of the same doctrinal truths which we now hold to as contained in the complete, sufficient revelation of God's Word. Now the author of Hebrews moves on to the second part of his argument. Look with me at verses 5 through 9. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. 
You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. If you recall in our previous studies, the author demonstrated the superiority of Christ over the angels whom these Hebrews held in high regard. And the basic thrust of the second part of his argument is that the angels aren't and never were meant to have dominion over the earth, not in this age, nor in the age to come. The angels are servants of God. They are powerful and majestic, yes, but God gave dominion over the earth to humanity. Men and women are the only beings made in God's own image. And we are also the only vessels God has chosen to glorify himself by demonstrating his redeeming self-sacrificial love. But in order to do that, he had to take on human flesh, taking on the same nature that we have and live a perfect sinless life in order to be our perfect substitute. The humanity of Christ will be a major focus for the remainder of this chapter. And this is what the author appeals to when he says in verses 6 to 8, but one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that you remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. This is a reference to Psalm 8, verses 6 to 4, a psalm of David. When he looked out and pondered the works of God's hands in the cosmos, David was struck that God would consider man as something to be even worth paying attention to. This tiny dust, this tiny speck of dust on the earth, inferior in majesty and intellect compared to angels, relatively feeble, without tools or clothing, like the animals, or unlike the animals. Man is a pride-filled, idol-worshipping, jealous, lustful creature, murderous at heart. So what is he that God should consider him? Yet, it's in God's purposes not only to care for him, but to die for him in order to redeem him and to lead him. In the original psalm, verse 5 of Psalm 8 reads, Yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. The word for God there is the Hebrew word Elohim, which can refer both to God or angels. But when the author of Hebrews quotes this text from the Septuagint, he obviously renders it as angels. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels, verse 7 says. And given the context of the author's argument, of course, it demands this rendering. There are a few other apparent interpretive discrepancies between Psalm 8 and the author's quote of it. And I say apparent because they are, of course, reconcilable because this is God's word and God is consistent. A lot of chapter 1 was spent arguing for the superiority of Christ over the angels and the author is doing the same with Psalm 8 here. But if you just read Psalm 8 and take it at face value, it seems to suggest that it's referring to humanity in general. So which is it, referring to Christ or to humanity? 
Well, some commentators have gone back and forth on this, but I think the best way to understand it, the most in line with the author's reasoning, is this. When God made man, he gave him the creation mandate. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. But when man sinned and fell in the garden, the creation was cursed with him. When that happened, death was introduced into the world. Contrary to the claims of modern science, death was not a part of God's original created order. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now the creation mandate was not abrogated, it wasn't done away with when man fell, but man would struggle and strive and never be able to fulfill his function of exercising dominion over creation in his fallen condition. God said to Adam, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That's from Genesis 3.19. So the fall is what caused man to be made lower than the angels, but in what way exactly? When Psalm 8 says he was made a little lower than Elohim, that is, to the angels, that can refer to stature, but it can also refer to time. That's why the author of Hebrews quotes it, that man has been made for a little while lower than the angels. But human nature, even before the fall, never possessed the same powers and attributes as angels, so in what way was man made a little lower than the angels? Well, we did share one attribute with them, namely that we were immortal. If man never sinned, he never would have died. But since the fall, man has withered and died continually. The whole of human history is carried out under the shadow of the curse of death brought about by Adam's sin. But it will not last forever. For as an Adam will die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15.22 Adam was our federal head, our representative in the fall. But for all who are in Christ, he has become our new federal head, our new and better Adam. We know he presently reigns spiritually over his people, seated at the right hand of the Father, Hebrews 1.3 says. But it's also true that this present world will be done away with and a new heavens and a new earth will be established. 2 Peter 3.7 But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Revelation 21, verses 1-4 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. 
Interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul quotes from Psalm 8 when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, 26-27, The last enemy that will be abolished is death, for he has put all things in subjection under his, that is Christ's, feet. And again, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him, that is Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So in an eschatological sense, meaning at the end of this present age and the beginning of Christ's eternal reign over the earth, Christ not only fits with this psalm, but he in fact fulfills it. God's people will be restored to a perfect state, removed from the presence of sin and death forever, and we will have dominion over the new creation under Christ our God and King. Isn't that what we yearn for? And because this was accomplished by Christ, shouldn't this be our song of praise and joy every day? That He died for me so that I might live to Him. And not just in some ethereal sense, but to have dominion over the earth as we were meant to, with Christ, ever in our presence, never to be separated from God again. The second half of verse 8 through the end of verse 9 says, For in subjecting all things to Him, that is to humanity, He left nothing that is not subject to Him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to Him, because of the ongoing effects of the fall, that is. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Do you see, especially in verse 9, how Jesus is counted among us? Despite his perfection, he too was made a little lower than the angels. In that, he suffered the ultimate effect of the curse, namely death. This was foretold even long before Christ came into the earth. Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Because God is just, our sin must be paid for either by us or by a legal stand-in. The cost was too much and the condescension too great for us to be lulled into apathy or pleasure-seeking or the fear of man because it's not about us. It's about Him. The question is not, do you sin? It's, are you looking to Him? Is Christ the object of worship in your life? And if not, do you even want him to be? If so, then we must pay much closer attention to this message of salvation so that we do not drift away and incur judgment upon ourselves. The power to pay attention flows from rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. Simply believing and trusting, relying upon God's promises and work. It's not in programs or education. It's not in working ourselves up. It's not in therapy or self-actualization. We don't need more products. We need to be humble 
and submit ourselves, entrusting all our cares unto God who gave His own Son to die for our sins. That should change everything about how we live and how we think. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? And so, though we still live in this fallen, sinful world, Christ has overcome the world. We have God's promise that He will make all things new, and through the eyes of faith, we see Jesus now, who in, middle, in the middle of verse 9, because of the suffering of death, is crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. And that doesn't mean every human ever, but those who have believed in Him. Looking ahead at verse 10, it says, For it was fitting for Him, for whom all things are, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. By faith, His perfect righteousness has been credited to us, and our sin has been imputed to Him. He tasted death for us, not in the sense that He sampled it, but that he truly, fully absorbed the complete measure of God's wrath for each and every Christian. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that at every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is King. He is crowned with glory and honor. And so Christian, don't neglect Him. Don't set your heart on lesser things. We've been forgiven an infinite debt at an incalculable cost. He is the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the Father but through Him. Live, therefore, live. Because while the law mediated through angels only has the power to condemn us, the gospel frees us to live for Him. And we have all the reason in eternity to praise Him for what He has done. And we have a glorious expectation of things to come. And so with thankfulness in our hearts, Let's live today and each and every day from this day forward unto Him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Christ, the revelation of Him which He spoke and the work that He accomplished on the cross for us and after which was confirmed by the apostles we thank you, Lord God, that this word is trustworthy and true. We thank you, Lord God, that we can stand on these promises that you have come in the flesh, in the person of Christ, to accomplish this great work yourself. You, O oh Lord, have stepped down from eternity to be our mediator. We thank you, Lord God, for this, this truth. Help us, Lord God, to stand and to live in light of this truth. Help us to not become distracted or complacent, Lord God. Help us to not be overwhelmed, Lord God, when fears arise. Help us to be anchored to Christ, 
Hold us, O Lord God. Hold our faith strong in him. Sanctify us, Lord God, that we may live lives that glorify you, remembering what he has done for us and living in light of that truth. And so we thank you, Lord God, for this, for this message. We thank you, Lord God, for this letter to the Hebrews to admonish us, Lord God, to remind us of these precious things. We pray, Lord God, that we would live in light of these truths from this day forward and each and every day for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.